Hello, welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at YouTube and also at FunkinStuff.net. Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go from iTunes as an audio podcast and from other leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Get your copy at Amazon if you don't already. Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you very much for your continued support and interest. My guest today is keyboardist Danny Bedrosian, who spent more than a decade, actually I think um, two decades, as a key member of George Clinton's Parliament Funkadelic, or P-Funk organization, as well as producing several releases under his own name and as a supporting player for many other acts. So, Danny, thank you so much for being here again. Yes, thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I say again because we've tried a couple of times and we've had some technical issues, so we're really keeping our fingers crossed this time. Yes. <laughs> and even now, Danny's coming to us uh, from the road. Uh, why don't you just for uh, a minute real quick uh, talk about the leg of the tour you're doing right now. Sure. Uh, we are on the West Coast leg of the P-Funk 2017 summer tour, uh, George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, and we are currently in Petaluma uh, awaiting our next show, uh, which is actually in Berkeley, California. Um, but then we will be playing in Petaluma right after that as well. Um, and uh, we're just on an off day here and uh, just got in from Portland. We just did the Pacific Northwest. Some amazing shows up there, Seattle and Portland, three shows up that way. And uh, now we're hitting the California leg of the tour and really looking forward to it. So. Amazing. It's been quite a tour this year. I mean, you went to you know the East Coast and the Midwest and over to Europe. And, wow, it's really been an epic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, George is, is really just, to this day, a master – uh, a true master of ceremonies, if you will. Like he's really just still got an amazing um, legacy and organization, and is constantly moving forward with his uh, his goals and dreams, which is really just really uh, inspiring. You know, it's a very inspiring thing to to be a part of and just to behold, to to witness. You know, just an incredible force of nature. George just turned seventy six this past month and still going strong and. We just love it. Yes, yes, absolutely. Very, we're very happy about that. So, so Danny, uh, before we get rolling into some current things that are happening now, let's talk a little bit about um, you know where you hail from. I know from Massachusetts, and you're a bit of a child prodigy. So, can you just talk a little bit about you know how music came to be in your blood? Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, music is uh, goes back very far for me in, in my family. Um, I was the son of classically trained concert pianists uh, who also ran their own piano school. Um, I was raised in northern Massachusetts and southern New Hampshire and lived in, I uh, was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is a, uh, an industrial city in, uh, in northern Mass. Parents hailed from Worcester and from Lawrence, uh, my mother and father respectively, and uh, were, were and are genius concert pianists and um, really ingrained and enriched my sisters and myself and our lives 
with, uh, with our classical piano training. We were enrolled in the school, continue to have to this day. And um, it was an amazing musical experience to have, an amazing training to have, uh, you know, practicing every day, uh, lessons every week, recitals seasonally and competitions as well. And being a part of that, uh, that experience was something I, I, I don't want to say I took it for granted, but I definitely didn't realize the vitality and importance and um, how much nurturing, musical nurturing went on on a minute to minute basis in my upbringing. So I'm really, I'm really uh, ecstatic now when I think back about it, about how awesome that was. And my house, most of the times there was more than one piano playing at all times. So, cause the school was in the house. So, um, you know, we had students coming over and you got to meet people from all walks of life. Um, and it was just really an amazing, an amazing experience. And I wouldn't, wouldn't trade that for the world. You know, it is what made me the, the player that I am today, and I wouldn't be the type of musician I am today without, without that formal uh, classical training. Also, it's my father who, you know, took me to my first James Brown concert and introduced me to other forms of music as well. So, um, they're also both incredible singers. We sang in the choir because they always did church gigs. My father was a was a choir director at a at a local church. My mother was the organist. And um, they did various church gigs at, at different denominations over the years. And a lot of times my sisters and myself were in those choirs as well. So we had that vocal training that went on for, for a lot of years, that SATBB uh, group vocal harmonizing and stuff like that was, was also in my blood. So uh, those, are, those are a big part of why I am the musician I am today. So, so yeah, and they are to this day the most brilliant concert pianists I've ever seen to this day. Mm. So. Wow, that's something else. So, you know, what's very cool about that especially is not only were they so gifted musically, uh, it sounds like, but also that they had an open mind as to different types of music and they were willing to expose you to that. Um, Danny, I'm wondering, you know, how much do you think that your ability then is, you know, nurture versus nature? Um, I've heard this before and I've, I've talked about this at, at some length before. I think that it's, I think it might be 50, 50. I don't really know if we can truly pinpoint. Um, but both of my parents also came from, um, fairly musical families. Um, uh, most of my aunts and uncles are musicians as well. Um, or singers. Uh, there was a lot of that on both sides. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, after doing a DNA test and finding out about my, on my father's side that uh, our real last name was Orbelian, not Bedrosian, and the Orbelians were a royal family of Armenia, and they must have had to change their name to escape from one of the persecutions by one of the Turkoman tribes at a certain point. But they decided to change the name, but for whatever reason, the Orbelians, even after they lost their power, um, remained in the arts very heavily and most of them are conductors 
and composers and pianists, a, a very large number. And the ones who aren't are like archaeologists and museum directors at the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, and very like uh, auspicious places in, in terms of musicology and uh, ethnography and archaeology and things like this. So I think it's just in my blood as well. Um, especially after taking the DNA test, I think it's much more um, ingrained uh, uh, than I knew, you know. Uh, but it's, but I think it's a little of both. I think it's definitely a little of both. Without the training, I wouldn't be where I am. I would just maybe have some inert version of it, and and uh, without without the um, it being so far back in my blood, maybe it wouldn't have been something I would have given so much interest to. So I think you need both. You know, very interesting. So, Danny, let's talk about, you know, when you got a little bit older into your teens and, you know, you started becoming very interested in Parliament Funkadelic and following them. And there was a, a contest you entered in that got their attention and kind of helped you um, infiltrate that world, if you will. So just tell us how you came to be part of P-Funk. Um. When I first got into P-Funk, it was definitely a genre of music that to me brought together all the different forms that I was either having to do for work or that I really liked. So I grew up in a generation where my peers and myself, it was listening to a lot of hip hop and there was a lot of metal. And a lot of the little groups of kids were broken up into what those sub-genres within those two genres. And once I found, I found out about P-Funk through sampling when I was a preteen, you know. Um, and it, once I discovered the albums themselves and started listening to, I was probably about 11 when I started listening. And I realized, oh, wow, this brings together, you know, some of the things, you know, I, I was a classically trained kid who started studying jazz when I was about 10 as well. So I'd already been into jazz a couple of years. I was playing. I was playing in groups, hip hop groups and metal groups. The uh, that was all over, all over the place. So this really married the rock, the, all the different things together. And I was really into R and B. I was really into R and B, and I had not only maybe four years before discovered James Brown, thanks to my father. So, so, and I'd been into Ray Charles again, thanks to my father. Things like that. My mother introduced me to the Beatles. To me, P Funk married. All those things. And then I found out as time went on that it also was was an influencer for some of those aforementioned things. So uh, super interested in that and then finding out that it's this great institution that the mighty force in and of itself and got into the the discography. So, so upon really discovering this music, being a fusion and a creator of a lot of the stuff that I was into, it really made the most sense for me to just start studying this really deeply. And even though I, of course, continued on my, my classical and jazz training along this the same time too, P-Funk was just the music I really listened to as a kid liking music, you know. So um, I studied it with the same type of fervor and passion that a classical pianist would study his own classical music. And I think that this, I say this over and over again, a lot of classical people don't apply that classical study skill that is so ingrained in them that they learn and it helps them make them such masters of music. 
but they don't apply it to other genres when it comes time to having to do something with that genre. And very few times do I see classical musicians find their way out. That's why they're so rare in popular music. Maybe not rare, but to see them marrying the classical and popular is much more rare. Someone like Bernie, like Bernie Worrell, who, who really influenced me, obviously, in a lot of ways. Um, but, but uh, you know, upon, upon discovering this music, I was really into exploring the discography and, and finding out as much about it as I could. And then, uh, yes, there was a contest. There was a chance to make George's bedsheet, where George was wearing these bedsheets in the 90s. And I was, I also came from an artistic family. There's a lot of painters and artists in my family. So, I, you know, I used to draw a little when I was younger. I really wanted to do comic books at one time in my life. So I created this pretty good, um, this, this, you know, pretty good uh, 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 bed sheet for him that had all these different uh, drawings and different characters from from the the legacy of the mythology of Pifong. had lyrics written all these colors and rump of steel skin on the front and the one nation flag on the back and aliens and it was cool you know and um got to meet the whole band including george and drop off the bed sheet he wore it at the show and um i took every chance to uh to to drop off my music upon meeting those guys and and several of them liked what they heard and it led to a, a friendship uh that allowed me to come down and do session work in florida um as a uh, still teenager by this point I, I i when i first won the contest i was 16 or 17 and when i first started uh doing studio work i was about 19 but uh, something George had said to me himself was, you know, finish school, finish school. Because I had told him my my intent, my hope was to, you know, land a job or some kind of work with the, with the band. I was really interested in it. And I told him about my studying over the years of this group and its legacy. And to the point where even when I was a teenager, we had, I had sung for him some songs from like the band's catalog, but from like the 60s, you know, from like the the Northern Soul era. And that really impressed him. And he was just like, always like, oh, wow, you know, Danny finish your school, finish your school. But when I was still in college, uh, I attended university in, in New Hampshire. Um, I had the opportunity to do those sessions. I was still a teenager at the time, 18 and 19. And then by the time I was in my early 20s and finishing up college, I had started doing some teching gigs for the band, just in the Northeast, but uh, doing tech work for uh, Jerome Rogers and for Razor. And um, those were my first gigs uh you know working at a show just just doing keyboard technician providing keyboard tech stuff and then uh after i finished college i moved down to tallahassee not with any necessary promises in mind just hoping that i could land some kind leap of, of faith leap of faith yep i graduated uh at unh uh in middle eastern studies you know what i mean but i had a whole lifetime of musical study under my belt and was ready to try this out so okay so then uh yeah i took a leap of faith and went down to tallahassee and started working in the studio uh doing sessions and it just so happened that a job out on the road had become available keyboard technician for for jerome and bernie and razor and i took the gig and um in uh 
But my first gig, I was playing. In fact, my first gig playing with the band, I actually played the whole show. <laughs> it was in September of 2003. I played Fender Rhodes. And then uh, my first time playing multiple shows, I was, I was doing full technician work. And that's when I was on the books, on the road. And, uh, but my very first show, I was playing. And even my second show, they'd, have, they'd pull me out on a certain song. I'd play a certain song. And then over time, I, uh, I just I got the, the, it ended up with me in the keyboard chair, so to speak. <clears throat> so you mentioned, you know, when you got into uh, the back discography and all that, I mean, I just remember thinking back, you know, when I first got into that and what an amazing world it was to discover and just, you know, all the mythology and all the different configurations. And, you know, it, it's just such a deep, complex, amazing world. Anyone who first gets into it, there's nothing quite like that experience. So, um, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so this is around uh, the mid-90s, right, when you uh, got mm -hmm. rolling with it. And, um, you know, I have this CD that I'd shown up before, and I think you said you were on a live cut on this one. Yeah, um, yep. But it wasn't until the next one that you really were doing a lot more session work, right? Yeah, well, it's funny because, I mean, I started doing session work before I was even in the band. So, I mean, that's the way that the releases go. You know, George is much like how Miles Davis was, very much in charge of his releases and how they're carried out. A session may come from a whole different decade that gets released later and, of course, evolves over time in terms of the mix and how George decides to produce it. But, uh, no, I mean, I was doing as many sessions before I was even on any of the albums as I was when I was on the album. That makes sense. Um, in fact, a lot of times, once the guys go out and do more live work, the, the unwritten rule is that they somehow do less sessions. But at one point, I think I did, and then I kind of went back around to doing more sessions again, even though I was still a live guy, if that makes sense. Um, but uh, no, I mean, 2005 was how late. I had already done vast swath of sessions, but I had already been on a few live albums before that, too. So if you count live albums, the first uh, live stuff I was on was the um, the two instant the two instant live uh, live in Atlanta and live in Portland Maine. Yeah. I'm on like one cut on each of those, and then I was on the whole Montro live at Montro jazz festival DVD and CD release. Um, that's me and Bernie, and then how late? And I'm on, but the but you know, like I said, the ironic thing or whatever is that the cut I'm on on how late is a, is a live cut. And then uh, there are several other live video and, and, um, and CD releases before I was on uh, Gangsters of Love. And that's a studio cut that I'm on on that uh, alongside Kendra and George and Chavo Odajian from uh, System of a Down. And we wrote that song, uh, Stillness in Motion. And, um, and then after that uh, was, was Shake the Gate. And I did a, a lot of this stuff simultaneously on Shake the Gate and then also on, on uh, the upcoming, I'm on even more stuff on the upcoming Parliament album as well on, on Medicaid Fraud Dog. Yeah, I wish um, I could hold that but I, up, but I can't. Right. But I did about, I'm on about 17 cuts on Shake the Gate though. And uh, I'm, on, I'm on a lot of the ones on there. You know, uh, 
Cold Power, Meow Meow, uh, uh, Get Low. Uh, God, this this this. Uh, I'm gonna be your dog forever. Uh, Yellow Light, uh, Catching Boogie Fever. Uh, there we boom. There you go again. Uh, there's a there's a lot. Like I said, 17. I'm on 17 on there. I can't remember all of them. Uh, but a bunch. A bunch. Uh, Brothers Bio like George and all that. Um, and uh, I'm proud of the the keyboard stuff I did on there. I was really psyched to be on on tracks that were also had Sly Stone on them and David Lee Chong and the Detroit Symphony Orchestra and Fred Wesley and. And so that's, I mean, it's an honor. It's a real honor. And, and I'm proud of the stuff I did on that album. I really like that album. It's got a ton of stuff. I mean, there's a lot. So back when you first got with the band, I'm thinking, you know, we, the first one or a few times that you were out there just playing with them, you know, were you just thinking, man, somebody pinched me? And were you also thinking, man, if I blink, this might go away? Or did you feel like, man, I'm at home? I can't hear you. Are you there? Okay. Yeah. All right. It just froze for a second. Um, no, it was, a, it was a surreal experience to be in the band that I always wanted to be in, for sure. And it definitely was just, um, a dream come true still is you know it's why I've um, stayed so loyal to the P-Funk cause is because it's also my favorite group and it's more than a group you know and I think and everybody who knows the music I mean there's 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 uh, treatises written about this people have majored in this in college it's been academicized it is more than a is more than a, um, a band it's become known to be more than a genre it's become known to be more than, more than a movement, more than institution. P funk is P funk. It's almost, you know, or undefinable. Certainly unclonable, as I've used before for certain members of the band to describe members of the band. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's yeah, it's a dream come true. I'm honored. I'm very honored, and I, uh, at the same time, you have to. Over time, like everybody's always talked about, you put your own stamp on what you do too. So I continue to study to this day, and I still practice anywhere between two and six hours a day every day of piano. You know, and that's my classical regimen that I'm keeping up, really. Um, but I also continue to study the P-Funk, and we always have new stuff we're working on. We just debuted a new song that hasn't even come out yet the last three shows for the first time ever. I'm going to make you sick. It's on the next Parliament album. And it's a Junie track. And, uh, and it sounds great live. And we've done it maybe three times, you know, other than in rehearsal. And we rehearsed, you know, pretty vigorously for it to, to get it right. And it sounds really good. So um, a nice taste of the ever-redeeming and constantly evolving uh, uh, thing that is the P-Funk, you know. So <clears throat> how much, you know, you said that you're on 17 cuts on, on Shake the Gate and of course you're on the new one. How much input and influence do you have at this point 
in what's being uh, produced or played and how's that compared to your earlier years? I mean, I think I probably, you know, when you're, when you're at any organization for any amount of time, your, your position probably or should or hopefully increases in value in terms of the intrinsic value, the internal value, the value for the overall organization and your personal value and what you're worth um, goes up over time. So for sure, it's definitely, I can say unequivocally, uh, greater than it was when I first came in, for sure. Um, uh, that being said, it's always about the producer, how it, how, what needs to be on that record. And um, maintaining versatility is, I think, the key. End of story. Versatility, no matter what. Open-mindedness, versatility. And um, I think that's what's allowed me to maybe maintain the position and, and grow laterally, um, both as a player and within the organization in terms of um, my input, I guess, you know. So I think that's probably a good way of putting it. Were there any particular tracks? You know, I saw the band uh, when they're in Charlotte. I think it was in April when we talked about while you were there, and that was really cool. Um, are there any cuts in particular that are a little more challenging than others to, to play, or you just kind of roll with it all? In terms of playing live in the show? Yeah. Uh huh. Um, well, there are different versions of hard, you know, and I think. Uh, Playing in P-Funk is a great example of that because there's different types of feel that you have to master in this band's repertoire that are not really equaled in other groups. It's just a type of feel, the plain field feel, if you call it, the funkadelic feel. It's a certain type of pocket that even other funk bands don't do. So when it comes to the understanding of that, your average, even your average good musician may not know what that is or how to do it. So therefore, for them, that's beyond hard. It's impossible. So things like that can be considered impossible for some people. Um, now, I can only base it on my own personal thing. I think that the feel of P-Funk for me was, even though it was something that was intrinsically inside me, I was a very romantic concert pianist, so for me it was all about feel. But really mastering that pull and push and how it goes is something that everybody has to undertake, and it's something that Bernie Worrell was a master of, and Cordell Boogie Monsoon was a master of, and and a lot of our guys that we do still have with us. But it's a smaller group of people that understand that than in other types of music, even in their age group among most of my peers. And it just so happens that most of my peers aren't my age, you know. And, and that has a certain thing with it, you know. Um, but so that can be considered what's challenging. What can also be considered somebody as challenging is something that you have to do in a certain type of repetition. I remember when I first joined the band, George would do these certain grooves and you'd have to repeat them really, really over these really just crazy expanses of time at certain tempos. And, and then of course there's what people consider difficult and just the natural musical theory wide, you know, definition. Um, and, and with that, yeah, there are certain songs that are more difficult than others, but there'll be certain songs that are more difficult for drums, for instance, and more songs that are more difficult for the keyboards. There are certain songs that require more parts to be played. And, you know, if you have a song that's got five or six Bernie Worrell keyboard overdubs and you're one man playing the keyboard, you have to find a way to 
internally canonize those five or six parts into one person playing four keyboards, you know? And so there's all kinds of ways. And then it varies chronologically through time or just with different personnel. I play totally different parts based on who I'm playing with, especially in terms of keyboards. And even though the majority of the time I've been in the band, most instances it's been just me, I've also had major instances where it's me and Bernie, me and Jerome, me and Amp, me and Jerome and Bernie, me and Jerome and Bernie and Razor. So I've had all those combinations in my time with the group. And in every combination, I, play, I had to play different parts. And so did the other constituent members of the, of the aforementioned combination. So in terms of difficulty, it all depends on uh, a person's interpretation of difficulty because you can really name a, a whole list of things that make it difficult. A lot of people have trouble playing an ensemble. Even good college-trained music major people have a lot of trouble playing in ensemble. And this is an ensemble's ensemble. It's a huge group. Uh, is a part-driven group. If you don't really know the parts, you can be in trouble. And it's also, uh, I always say the canon is as important as the song. I always say this about P-Funk. And um, with any song, you have different versions of that song. The way it was played by subsequent members over time. The way the different versions of the songs that George released, like Red Hot Mama or I Want to Testify, for instance, or The Goose. These songs had multiple versions. Or Heart Trouble, which has like four or five versions. As in I Love You has like three or four versions. So um, the canon is the most important thing. Do you know the way every guy who played your instrument played this song over time and the original and the other versions or whatever? That's the best way to really master it. And so I think that that's uh, – and, and not even to say that I know that on everything, but I just think that's the way I try to approach it. Um, and that's, that can be hard for people. Or just, you know, the way that um, working with these, these grandiose, these famous big-time band leaders like James Brown and George Clinton, for instance. Working under that, that's a certain type of difficulty. Understanding the direction is a certain type of difficulty that a lot of players can't do. Um, playing the songs in almost any key, because you might be doing a medley. You have to immediately transpose like that. That could be considered the more difficult thing or playing a part because it's just a hard part to play, you know, or a lot of times P-Funk parts are misconstrued. People are playing them wrong. Uh, it's actually this. Oh, that's even more difficult <laughs> or just not what they thought they heard. That can be the difficult thing. So with P-Funk, you name it, the discography is so big and the people who played in the group are so many and so genius and so many different eras. You can just name a whole laundry list of things that you could describe as being the most difficult thing. It's definitely not for every musician, but almost any musician would, if they looked at it from the inside or even peered through real quick, be like, oh, that's vast. You know, that's vast. That's, there's a lot to that. You know. Wow, so many variables, Danny. So. Are there a couple of tracks, though, I mean, maybe as many as, you know, three or five, though, that <clears throat> for whatever reason are among your favorite, uh, if not to play, then just in the canon? And, and mm -hmm. why? Um, well, my favorite album in the canon is Let's Take It to the Stage. Uh, and it's probably my favorite album of all time. 
So sometimes I take it outside the rem the realm of P-Funk when I think of it because it's so up there for me. And my second favorite is probably Osmium. And my third favorite is probably Funk and Teleki. They're all different eras. But um, those are my favorite albums. Now, uh, as far as ones that I play, because there are certain songs I play every night, they hold a certain value in terms of, uh, you know, everybody always talks about, in everybody, it could be any band. It could be talking about, uh, the Almond Brothers or the Rolling Stones or P-Funk or whoever. Um, you ever get sick of playing this song or that song? And the the answer is pretty much no, I don't. But which ones are always fun? That can kind of show you the the breadth and life of a song, at least for you personally. And I guess um, Knee Deep is kind of like that for me. But uh, yeah, knee deep. I'd say for ones that we do, for ones that we don't do, and there's so I mean, there's songs that we've done once or twice ever. That's how big this discography of this band is. But when we did them, they were great. Like I, I initiated a, a joyful process in Paris a couple of years ago, and it was awesome. We did the whole song, so much fun. There was a couple times that we did um, uh, uh, the song is familiar from Let's Take It to the Stage. Very rare, but I love doing that. Very rarely, but every once in a while we did Trash a Go-Go. I love that. Yeah, when it comes to doing the rare ones, I love doing that kind of stuff. Name the song, I, and, it, and I love it. You know what I mean? It, I, I can't pick a favorite when it comes to the stuff that we rarely do because I'm always a strong proponent of doing it. You know, so it's really just like, oh, yeah, that's the one, you know. Uh, but for ones we do a lot, you know, I love Maggot Brain. I love Knee Deep. I love Flashlight. I I love them all. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm happy to play this music still. It doesn't, uh, I probably like it better maybe than when I even started as far as playing it. Wow. So has George ever uh, thrown out something that was sort of unexpected and maybe you hadn't rehearsed or played it much and you kind of just had to wing it all the time. He does that kind of stuff all the time. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of times, when he's feeling really has serious convictions about a certain song or series of songs, he'll call like a rehearsal and have us do it. But a lot of times what makes us the band that he likes and what makes us, you know, great, so to speak is, is our ability to do that when we have to, you know what I mean? Cause it happens. It does happen. You know, little tests we call them. <laughs> what about the chemistry, Danny? You know, when you have so many guys and sometimes they're rotating in and out, how do you sort of maintain or find that chemistry? Well, I think it's definitely a band uh, family component um, and the legacy component, the, the feeling that what we're doing is important. Yeah, the chemistry is important. I think that a lot of it has to do with the family dynamic, family component in the band and the fact that also everybody knows or feels like they're doing something that's important that's contributing to a legacy and uh, an institution of value. Chemistry, you know, everybody has their things, like every family, every band, but, but ours, I feel like, is for the most part usually pretty good. And I think that it has to do with those two factors, family factor, the fact that everybody really has, a, you know, feelings for each other of, of positivity and love and compassion. We all do live together for a lot of days of the year, you know. And the fact that we all care about the thing we're doing, you know, I think that's a big part of it.
So. So George has gone through a lot of ups and downs and changes business-wise, you know, substance-wise, uh, music-wise, throughout, um, throughout his whole career, and certainly since you've been around. So how is it different working with him now as opposed to 10 or 20 years ago? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the overall personnel changes over time. So whenever personnel changes, it changes the overall makeup and the way that the thing runs, but the thing always runs. So I look at my time and tenure under George over these, over the different years. And, and yeah, I mean, he's, you know, in some ways you can say, well, yeah, he's healthier now than he probably has been in many years. So we're all really happy about that. That's what's continuing to the longevity of the overall flying of the ship itself. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the makeup of the band and how the band changes a lot of times steers goes over time. And I think from an historical standpoint, at least, and a personal one, I think it's just different, different in different times, you know what I mean? But not something that I can pinpoint and be like, it's this, you know, thing. I, I, I a lot of times will listen back to shows and they sound different than how I remember them. So if something that's as ingrained in me as the music we play ends up sounding that different 12, 14, 16 years later than I thought it did, usually for the better, but just in general, and why it sounds different, then I can't pinpoint probably any one particular change in the condition of the overall thing, other than the fact that it changes. This, this, this band is like an organic thing. It evolves over time, which is cool. Well, in that evolution, I mean, you know, I've seen them many, many times over the years and uh, seen you many times with them. But it had been a few years since I had seen them until recently in Charlotte. And I was really impressed with the new generation, if you will, all these, you know, new bloods that have come in. And I think there's, you know, a new energy and a new flavor to it. And it's just very encouraging and heartening to see the P being kind of evolving and furthering and just knowing that its future looks pretty bright at this point, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think you said that pretty eloquently. I think that is, uh, with the coming of the Shake the Gate album, there was a, a acquisition of newer members to, that came from some of the sessions from that album. And uh, with the new members, you know, it's just a continuation of the thing. But again, from an historical standpoint, it's, it's, uh, it's common to the cause, if you will. It's uh, something we've been seeing pretty much since 1955, 56, since this thing started, is the personnel, you know, evolving, new people coming in, old people coming back, people staying, people going, you know. It's, uh, it's what's made it last. Or it's a piece of what's made it last. It's definitely a part of what's made it last. Um, and yeah, very welcome. Yeah, I, I think, Danny, at least for me, there's more of a sense than ever of how important it is and how much to really appreciate that it's still there for us all because, you know, we've lost so many great ones just over the past few years, you know, and, and Bernie and Peanut and um, Junie and um, the list goes on and on. But, you know, we were losing some over a period of time going back to, to Gary. But just in the past few years, it's been a lot of hits. So. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure you you feel like a certain um, 
you know, how, how does that affect you as a musician, a part of the band, with what that's what's happened the past few years? Well, I mean, it's an indescribable thing to put into words. You know, these are your mentors, your uncles, your brothers, uh, your your closest co-workers, your close confidants. Of course, you know, losing them for any one of us to speak on any one of our behalves is, uh, is actually quite hard to do because, you know, the... Uh, the thing that they contribute to everybody's lives is immemorial. And so there's, there's the beauty in that. And I think they all, all of the ones we lost were very cognizant of that, very cognizant of that. And so there's a beauty in that. Um, but of course the loss of them themselves, indescribable, you know, and, uh, and it's, it's not, it's not something that uh, uh, that can be fully understood. Every one of those guys could have several books written about them, you know. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's something that's very near and dear to all of our hearts. That dear losses. We've had a lot of dear dear losses, you know. And uh, yeah, it's t it's a tough thing for sure.